Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have this privilege to spend time worshiping you in song and in prayer, worshiping you in giving, and now worshiping you through this study. We are grateful that you have revealed these difficult truths to us that our hearts would long more and more for your grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Minister your grace in us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you have a friend who will have your back through thick and thin? When things get rough, do you have someone who will ride out the storm with you? When something great happens in your life, do you have someone to celebrate with? Does anyone rejoice when you have something to rejoice about or weep with you when you have something to weep about? Ecclesiastes chapter 4 could be simplified down to this statement. Life is better with friends. Life is better with friends. We'll navigate through this chapter under these five headings. I'm just going to briefly list them for you and then we'll march through them. First, oppression is bad, but no comfort is worse. You'll see that in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, envy and laziness are evil consequences of a lack of satisfying relationships. We'll see that in verses 4 through 6. Third, dying is hard, but dying alone is worse. We'll see that in verses 7 and 8. Fourth, adversity is hard, but adversity alone is worse. We'll see that in verses 9 through 12. And finally, isolation results in no lasting impact. We'll see that in 13 through 16. But first, we'll start at the beginning. Oppression is bad but no comfort is worse. Verses 1 through 3 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon writes, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has never yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Solomon has weighed this out. He's thought this through. He's looked about at all the difficulties that people experience, but not just challenges they face, but there are actual oppressors, people that are pressing down, people that are hurting, people that are literally crushing. That's the idea of oppression there. Crushing. People are crushing people. 
This is real life adversity. There are the tears of the oppressed. The oppression results in weeping and wailing and even gnashing of teeth. The oppression results in, in Solomon's thought that maybe, verse 2, people would be better off dead. The oppression that he saw all around against the weaker people was so horrific that he said, it's better to never live. Job said that once, didn't he? Oh, that my mother were childless. Something like that anyway. Oppression hurts. And we're not talking about simple oppressions. We're talking about devastation. We see in this text, those who have power over against those who have no comfort. We see the haves over against the have-nots. We see the predator over against the prey. We see the sex abuser over against the victim. We see the domineering spouse over against the victimized spouse. These abuses happen every day all around the world. These abuses happen in cities, towns, schools, and churches. On average, think this one through, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. The United States alone this translates to one year to more than 10 million women and men every year. And we're a civilized society. We are the land of the free and the home of the brave. You see the ripple effects of these things in every venue of, of life. A little microcosm is in the, the athletic world where this guy gets suspended because he punched his girlfriend in the face. And we think, oh, how horrible. Yes, but it happens to people that are not high profile as well. This could be happening next door to you. This could be happening in our neighborhood. It happens all around the world but all around this country that is set up for people to live the American dream. There are oppressions. There are people crushed. The abuse is bad enough. We could go on and exhaust our minds on that topic. The abuse is bad enough. But having no support system in place multiplies the trouble. Sometimes this lack of Companion-type support results in victims remaining in an abusive relationship. Instead of saying, something is wrong with this, this is not the way it's supposed to be, because there's no other seeming way out, they remain in that abusive, horrific situation. 
I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one, no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. But on their side, there was nothing, no comfort. They're alone and broken and beaten. The horrors, the horrors of having no one to have your back. We should have a zero toleration for this. But we will not stop abuse entirely in this life. There's a day coming, maybe even soon, where all of the abuse will stop because King Jesus will come and he will have his way. Until then, we will not stop all of the abuse. We will not stop people from being crushed. However, as the people of God, we need to be ready to stand in support and provide comfort to those who are crushed. Where else do abused people have to go? Where else do victims have to go? We, as the people of God, should be those that are supportive and ready to come alongside of those who are crushed. The terrors of oppression are so significant, as we've already said, that Solomon says, uh, from a simply earth-bound point of view, some are better off dead. Verse 2, when I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And in some ways... Uh, He muses, it's better to never have been born to experience the pain of this evil world in verse 3. He says, but better than both is he who has never yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And so we we live in in a world that is filled with turmoil and oppression and difficulty. And Solomon says some people are better off dead. Some people are better to not have existed at all. Because in the face of all of it, Who is there to be on your side? Who is there for you? That's the first section. Let's move on to the second section. Verses 4 through 6. Envy and laziness are evil consequences of a lack of satisfying relationships. Let's read the passage and then we'll we'll work through it. Verse 4. Then I saw that all toil... And all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Verse 4, essentially... Uh, as, as, I, as I try to just summarize it, because we can't, we can't dissect all of this. We just don't have the time to do it. Good luck keeping up with the Joneses. Good luck with it. Someone has a better truck, you want it. Someone has a better body, you want it. Someone has a better house, you want it. They have a nicer wife, better behaved children, a better job. The list goes on and on of ways that we can covet and envy others. It is just an endless proposition. And Solomon says, this is really what motivates people. 
You see someone working hard, it's because they saw someone that had something nicer. See someone striving in intellect, they saw someone that they thought might be smarter. It is innate in us to compare. Am I as fat as... Have I lost as much hair as... Do I have as many wrinkles as... Is my truck as nice as... It's innate in us. There's, there are regular comparisons. The most normalized of us still compares ourselves with other people. Think about how you deal with photos, right? We're, we're all familiar with, with this. When there's a, a group photo, who are you looking for? Looking for yourself. Ah, that one wasn't so great. Can we throw that one out? Oh, please don't put that on Facebook. <laughs> you know how it goes. We're, we're, it's, it is innate in us. Because of envy, people work harder. That's the idea of verse 4. Verse 5 is still on the same, same topic, but there's a different response. For others, they see their own limitations. They see that they could never be LeBron James. My DNA does not allow me to do what LeBron James does. They see they could never be Justin Timberlake. They don't have the charisma or whatever the wiggles that is that he has. Uh, they, I'll never be Elon Musk. I'm not that ingenious and I don't have that entrepreneurial spirit and, and, I, and I'm not going to propose um, making like an outer space thing, okay? It's just, I'm not going to do it. They see Alistair Begg and say, I can never speak Scottish. I want to speak Scottish, but I can't. I want to be as smart as he is, but I'm not. I want to be as eloquent as, as he is, but I'm not. I want to be as brief and succinct as he is, but sorry for you, I'm not. So some people, they, we see these things, and it's like, I can't attain to this level that I find is, is the right level. And because we can't attain to those heights, we sit on the couch and eat Tootsie Rolls, and a Ghirardelli brownie ice cream sundae. Instead of advancing our capacity, we binge watch whatever show piques our interests. Verse 5 says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. You fold your hands in idleness and consume yourself so that you have less than nothing. Because you have given up, because you have seen what your neighbor has, and you, you envy it, but you know you can't attain it, you throw your hands up in the air, and you say, I'll never be what they are, so. That's one, that's an extreme. They consume themselves. Envy is a double-edged sword. It cuts in either direction, either toward trying to attain what others have or giving up altogether and being lazy. What we need is what verse 6 tells us. We need quietness. We need peace. It says in verse 6, better is a handful, a handful of quietness, peace, than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Instead of trying to attain or giving up and, and consuming yourself, what you need really is peace. And I'd say just the context of the chapter really lends itself toward friendship. I want you to think about this. Friendships would really help in this matter. Are you covetous of what your friend has? 
Like, I'm talking about a real friend. I'm talking about someone that you, it, it, it's like your souls are knit together like David and Jonathan. Are you covetous of that one? Are you happy when they succeed? How about when their children succeed? It's like, it's a joy. Like, this is my friend. It's like we're, we're, we're in this together and I see them succeed and I celebrate and I see their kids succeed and I celebrate. When, when you have true, meaningful relationships, envy goes out the, the door and laziness is not one of the options that is there. A peaceful, true friendship does not result in sinful responses such as envy or laziness. Thirdly, as we move a little further, Dying is hard, but dying alone is worse. Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. I saw something else that lets me know that this life is so transient, temporary, and that lets me know that this life is hard to grasp. Verse 8. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet... There is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. He's essentially saying that he doesn't have a companion, he doesn't have a friend, he doesn't have a kid, he doesn't have a brother, he doesn't have anyone to share all this with. He's he's just working, 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 working. And you know what he does with all the stuff he, he works for? He stores it up, he saves it. He saves it. He doesn't enjoy it. He doesn't share it. He doesn't have anyone to pass it on to. He's just storing up gobs and gobs and gobs of money that he's doing nothing with. What is the point? What is the purpose of accumulating stuff if you're not going to A, enjoy it, or B, share it? What's the point? There is no point. What's it all for? These two verses do not provide Verses 7 and 8, they do not provide a full view of biblical financial wisdom. It simply is provoking our thoughts to consider why, why are we saving our money? What are we saving it for? If you're saving it to, to enjoy, great. If you're saving it to share, great. If you're just hoarding it, not great. That's the only principle that he's communicating about money in this particular section. Dying is hard, but dying alone is worse. What what am I going to do with this stuff? What's the point? Number four, adversity is hard, but adversity alone is worse. Verses 9 through 12. We'll paint the picture, and then we'll read the text. The scenario uh, of a journey is envisioned. Solomon envisions a, a journey. And he presents three possible issues that you might face on this journey. In verse 10, you might fall into a ditch. In verse 11, you might be sleeping in the cold. And on this journey in verse 12, you might come under attack of a burglar. And what he'll let us know is that all of these are better with a friend. Verse 9. Ready? Verse 9. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has none, uh, not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. 
But how can one keep warm alone? Verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So he paints these scenarios. All of these situations are better with a friend. You might still fall. You might still be cold. You might still experience someone trying to take your stuff. But you have a friend to help. And it says a three fold cord is not quickly broken. In other words, two is better than one, and guess what's better than two? Three. Three. Uh, this is not necessarily, so I'm, well, this is, this is husband and wife coming together, and then the Holy Spirit unites them together, and that's the third cord of, I don't, I don't it doesn't say that here. You, you can try that, enjoy, um, but that's not what it says. The concept is just letting you know when you are partnered together, there's strength. And I, w- I was trying to think of ways to illustrate this, and it, and it really, I fell flat on it. But at least let me opine about what I was considering. Let's suppose you're mountain climbing, right? And your friend is below you and you want to help him up. You've got your hand holding him and you've got two together. If you then take a strap, a tether, and strap your hand to his, get Gets what's stronger, the, the three parts together or just the two hands holding? Eventually, your hand can, can lose grip. But if you have tethering uh, from one wrist to the other, uh, it, it strengthens the situation. That's the kind of idea that, that Solomon is proposing. He lets us know that having two rather than one produces a better reward in verse 9 and essentially more security in verses 10 through 12. We see in the concept there? Pretty plain, isn't it? All right. Verses 13 through 16 is a little less plain. We'll try to work through it quickly anyway. Isolation results in no lasting impact. Isolation results in no lasting impact. Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who uh, no longer knew how to take advice. That to me, right there, take advice, that's the key that ties it back to the rest of the chapter. If you remove the take advice part away, you think, why is verses 13 through 16 part of this chapter? It, does, it seems to be unrelated. It's not. I think the take advice part is what connects it, okay? Keep that in mind. Verse 14. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with... That youth could also be translated a second youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is a vanity and a striving after wind. This is tough, tough to to grapple with. But um, I, I think that we're capturing it with the statement, isolation results in no lasting impact. So let me talk through it. Solomon first lays out a principle and then tells a story about it. Here's the principle. Listening to counsel is better than not. (laughs) To not to. Listening to counsel is better than not listening to counsel. He tells this story about a poor and wise youth. We don't know this poor and wise youth. We have no idea this... This doesn't fit somewhere. You say, oh, this is about Joseph. This is about this person. It doesn't. It doesn't work. So don't try. He's telling a story. He knows what it's about, and we don't really. A poor and wise youth. As a poor and wise youth, he took counsel. 
He had companions. He rose up to a position of prominence. This same wise youth became an old, foolish king. Not listening, he isolated himself. He reached immense heights from a lowly beginning, and then he thought too much of himself. And what is the result of this type of scene? You'll be gone, and a second youth will come along. He'll take your place. People will forget about you. And guess what? Later on, they'll forget about him too. They too will follow suit, and people will despise them as well. And so I think if you try to figure out, okay, well, what is this, how does this relate? A good friend could steer this old foolish king in a better direction. If he hadn't isolated himself, thought too highly of himself, possibly he would have listened to his friend and made better choices and had a different result. Life is better with friends. I want you to think, I'm going to, I'm going to list some things now, and it's going to try, you know, try to capture what we've already discussed. Life is better with friends. We can comfort one another. We can avoid the double-edged sword of envy and laziness. We can have someone to share our rewards with. Our rewards might be more significant as a result of working together. We're safer together. And we can give good, impactful counsel to one another. This is just the surface. What we just talked about in 30 minutes is just the surface of what's going on on in Ecclesiastes 4. We are not rabbis when we read Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We read Ecclesiastes chapter 4 as Christians. See, we have a distinct advantage because we live on the other side of the cross. And we can see a bit of the panoramic view of what God is doing. And so we can read this even better than people could three and 4,000 years ago. This is great practical wisdom, but it is written to us and for us for more than that. It is good to have friends in high places, right? You've heard the expression, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Friends, I have good news for you. Do you remember that God called Abraham his friend? Did you know that? God. He precedes all things because he's eternal. His wisdom is far beyond our grasp. His justice is real, which means sin is a real problem. His holiness prevents enduring fellowship with sin. And God called Abraham 
his friend, at least in two places. This should get us thinking. What about me? Would God be my friend? God, would you be my friend? And I have good news for you. The Bible addresses this as well. I, I invite you to turn, please, to Luke chapter 7. You'll find that on page 864 of one of our church Bibles. Luke chapter 7. Just a passing statement. And it, it, this, this, this passage, someone could dispute the, the veracity, the truthfulness that Jesus calls himself the friend of sinners because he's quoting someone else, okay? But we'll get to a passage that doesn't have any question about it in just a moment. Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man has come. He's quoting now the people that were criticizing him. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This, this matters to me a lot. I, I can remember it was, it was almost an entire year, almost an entire year, that I would read the Jesus Storybook Bible to my son Asa before he we went to bed. We read through it, and we read through it, and we read through it over and over again. He loved it, and I, so did I, quite frankly. And, and just about every night, I would say to Asa, Asa, aren't you glad that Jesus is a friend of sinners? I said, because I'm a sinner. That means he's willing to be my friend. And you're a sinner. That means he's willing to be your friend. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And if he weren't, we would all be without hope. Take a look, please, at John chapter 15. In John 15, look at verses 13 through 15. Jesus is speaking and he, write, and he speaks. And John writes, Greater love, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life, we say it, for his friends. Someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer... Do I call you what? Servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you what? Friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He laid down his life for his friends. This friend we're talking about, whether you want to talk about God in general or Jesus Christ specifically, this friend is near to those who are oppressed. The Bible says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Is this your God? This friend shares his righteousness his joy, his peace, and his presence. There is no need to be envious of this friend. 
nor does he press us to the point of quitting. For he provides for us with the righteousness and purity that we lack. This friend tells us that we have something worthwhile to save up for. But it's not about the transient trinkets of this world, but rather it is a treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. This friend tells us when we are laboring for him that our labor is not in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And this friend tells us that we will reap a harvest if we do not lose heart in Galatians 6, 9. This friend rules heaven and earth. The Bible tells us he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet, all things, all things under his feet, and has given him as head over all things to the church. We do not have to worry if he knows whether we've fallen in a pit or if we're cold or if a band of robbers is seeking to strip us of all of our worldly possessions. This friend knows this friend might let us fall into a pit. This friend might allow us to be cold. This friend might allow that band of robbers to overtake us and take our stuff. But this is always true of this friend. He will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. This friend has provided for the fact that I will never, ever be condemned. And I will never, ever be separated from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus, my Lord. This friend, while he may allow difficulties in our lives, he will win out in the end. And those things that we endure, that we don't like, the, the difficulties, the oppressions, the things that we, we, we despise in life, all of those things he, he entrusts to us as our friend. Because he knows what he's doing with us. And he knows where it all ends. You could not find a better friend than Jesus. This is a friend who provides us with the very best counsel, for he is the incarnate word. He is truth. He is truth. Is Jesus your friend? He is only your friend if he has saved you from your sin. This is one of the glorious realities that the Bible continuously presents and heralds to us. We were enemies of God because of our sin. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, he has brought us near. When we turn from our sin 
and we turn to Christ. We are reconciled, reconciled with God. We are, as Abraham, we are God's friends because he attributes to us a righteousness not our own, like he attributed to Abraham, a righteousness that is not his own, that comes through faith in God. When we turn to God for our salvation, we are God's friends. We are reconciled. Listen up, please. If you are a friend of God, it is your job to be a channel of his friendship to the church. If you are a friend of God, it is your job to be a channel of his friendship to the church. In Ephesians 4, that means bearing with one another. That means putting up with one another. That means bearing long with one another's differences. That means demonstrating the kind of love God demonstrated toward you and continues to demonstrate toward you. This is the way the church begins to make an impact on the world about us. When our friendship with God results in a friendship with one another, it is a telling testimony to the world about us. The Bible says in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That means, brothers and sisters, if you can't tolerate one another, you are demonstrating something different than discipleship. If I can't tolerate any one of you, I am not demonstrating true discipleship. It is our job to be a channel of God's friendship in the church. It is also your job and mine to offer people of this broken world this type of of friendship. So we'll close with two questions. Very simple, just restating what I just said. Who are you showing this type of friendship to in the church? And secondly, who are you offering this type of friendship to in the world? Life is better with if you know Jesus, you have the best of the best friends. But he's enabling us to be that kind of best of the best friends. And we should not be picky choosy with that best of the best friends. Because that's not true type of friend that we're talking about. How lovely were you when Jesus befriended you? Pretty cruddy. Same here. I'm still pretty cruddy to be a friend of sometimes. And he still, he still serves as my friend. That's the kind of friends that we need to be here and there by God's grace.
Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We're so thankful for your friendship. We're thankful for what Jesus has done to make us fit, not only as sons, but as friends. Work in us, enabling us to be what we're supposed to be. Bring forth this type of friendship in our lives and through our lives for your glory. Cause your church to be seen as a place where the oppressed, the crushed, could come and be loved and supported. And may we never be the oppressors. We pray this in Jesus' name.